Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is a podcast where I ask my guests to reveal the five things from their life that they regard as precious enough to preserve in a time capsule. Things that they treasure or feel would represent a time in their life that they look back on fondly. But they must also choose one item they wish they could forget about, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the composer of West End musicals, glorious choral music, and the theme tune for dozens of television's greatest shows, Howard Goodall. Howard has written the music for Mr Bean, Blackadder, Red Dwarf, Not the Nine O'Clock News, The Vicar of Dibley, 2.4 Children, The Thin Blue Line, The Catherine Tate Show and QI, amongst many others. He's won a Royal Television Society Award and a BAFTA Hugh Weldon Award. He's presented the BBC's Choir of the Year and Young Musician of the Year and six award-winning series of television programmes on musical theory and history on Channel 4. He won an Ivan Novello Award for the music for the hit musical The Hired Man and has composed the music for many others, including Bend It Like Beckham. And he's written loads and loads of choral music. Too much to mention here, but honestly, look him up. So let's find out what Howard Goodall, CBE, would like to put in his time capsule. Look, nobody in our sector Mm. can possibly think that things are perfect because, you know, there are no theatres pretty much open. Uh, You know, there are no concert halls open where things are performed. Mm. It's kind of just disappeared. And the worst thing is that although there is some optimism with the vaccine coming and things might get back to normal and medical science is saving our bacon in a historic and amazing way. Amazing, yeah. The fact is it's going to take a long time for our sector to recover. Mm. And in this period we've had, whilst there's been some money for buildings and salaried staff therein, Mm. um, the freelancers who actually make all the art in this country have not been treated so well. 
you know, if government ministers ever say anything positive about the arts, it's always to do with the money that they generate for the country, which is great. And I'm all in favour of that. And I make that point myself. The fact of the matter is that uh, government ministers in France, in fact, anybody you bump into in France will say it's a good thing to be a musician or a composer or an artist or Mm. a painter. They actually think it's a great thing to have in a society. Uh, I remember once, you know, I was composing a piece of music in a in a friend's holiday place down in the south of France. Mm. And I went down in those days when I used to write it out in ink manuscripts. <laughs> um, fancy that. I, I used to be a bit paranoid about what would happen if there was a fire or it flew into the water or something like that and the manuscript would be lost forever. <laughs> so every morning I would go down to the local tabac you know, where they had a few little things in there and at one table for a cup of coffee in a little village. But there was a photocopying machine. So I would take my, my manuscripts down there and photocopy them mm. in the mornings just to make sure I had two copies of, of these things. And I remember one day the guy behind the tabac counter, he said, what, what are you? What are you photocopying every morning here? And I said, well, I'm, I'm photocopying my new compositions that I'm making. And he said, what a wonderful thing to be wow. someone who creates new music. Mm. Now, I don't want to diss, you know, everybody who runs a, a, a small shop or a cafe in Britain, but <laughs> I think that conversation would be less likely to have taken place in Britain. Yes. Uh, for all our other, you know, um, flaws and strengths as mm. a country, I think the French have a particular, and the Germans too, a particular interest in and respect for culture. Quite. which is not shared around the world. Sadly. And now, talking of France, you once told me a very funny story about travelling through France, where you were composing a piece of music that was French-themed, I think you said, and therefore travelled through France to staying in little villages in order to get the atmosphere of the thing. And uh, and you were paying for everything in francs, so this was quite a while ago. <laughs> do you remember this story? I, I do remember this story. Um, <laughs> it doesn't reflect well on me because it shows how stupid I am. Um, but as you've mentioned it, I think I should follow through for the listeners. Right. Which was that actually my eventual um, destination was the south of Spain to meet up with some pals. And um, I thought, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll have a fun time. I'll drive all the way through France. I'll do some composing on the way. I'll stop a night here, a night there. And then I'll carry on driving all the way down to the south of Spain. It's a very long way, by the way. Mm. I mean, it's a thousand miles from London to the Spanish border. Yes, just just to get that far. And then it's almost the same again to get to the bottom of Spain. Anyway, <laughs> and it was quite good fun. But it was in the days before the Euro, and um, I had been spending francs, and I'd worked out the exchange rate very cleverly, and I was being, you know, thrifty, but also having a few treats along the way. Anyway, I got to the Spanish border, and I thought, I'd better change my francs into pesetas. And my first night was at a little small boutique kind of um, hotel, B&B type of a place. So anyway, I, the guy came and brought my bags from my car to the room and he put them down and I gave him, you know, uh, a tip. I think it was probably like three quid or four quid in those days. Mm. Um, and he was fantastically happy about this. I thought <laughs> they are so nice, the Spanish, aren't they? They're so kind and, you know, everything's a bonus and all the rest of it. I went down to supper and I thought, gosh, the, the, the wine list... First of all, quite an impressive wine list, but these wines, God, Spain is really cheap. Uh, <laughs> and I said, well, if it's this cheap, like the, the most expensive bottle on the menu was, was four quid. So I thought, I'm going to have that. Mm. You know, why not? They Obviously, the restaurant staff very delighted about me ordering this very delicious <laughs> red wine. The next morning, the staff 
came collectively to wave goodbye to me at my car. <laughs> uh, I, th- I thought, gosh, the Spanish are just the loveliest people in the world. You'd never get this anywhere else. How kind. And I waved at them and smiled, this, that, and the other. Anyway, I continued my journey and eventually came to the place where I was meeting up with these other mates. And we went out for a beer. I think Mark Williams, he was the one I was having a beer with, I seem to remember, and maybe Richard Coles. Mm. And we went down to this, uh, I don't know why I bunged in these two famous names. It's just that <laughs> their ridicule, everybody can now picture. And I said, God, you know, Spain's brilliant. It's so cheap. I said, this rounds on me, I'll get this. I said, you know, fancy that, 25p for a beer. That is it's so cheap. So either Mark or Richard said, uh, no, no, not 25p, £2.50. So what are you talking about? It's not 25p for a beer. Anyway, it turned out that I had got the peseta conversion rate <laughs> wrong by a factor of 10. Oh, so when the guy had brought me my bag in the small hotel in, near Valencia, I'd actually given him 30 quid tip <laughs> to bring one, one bag to my room. I'd ordered a 40 pound bottle of wine <laughs> and all my other tips were equally enormous, which explains why the lovely staff came to wave goodbye to me. Oh, Is that the lovely. story you meant me to tell? That is that, exactly it, the it story. It makes me yes. look stupid and non-mathematical. Yeah, yeah. Before we realise just how <laughs> clever you are, I think it's important <laughs> to point out that even clever people do really, really silly things. <laughs> <laughs> so you want five things for the time capsule you're not 50. That's right, yes. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. (laughs) Okay, so yes, indeed, let's do that. Let's think of the five things that you would put into a time capsule and see what they are. Okay, so number one, Mm -hmm. Bach. His entire output, him, (laughs) his, his legacy, everything he wrote, everything he stands for. Now, Richard Coles asked you for the 14th century, so I think it's Mm. not too ambitious to ask for one whole composer. No, I think it's fair enough. And it's interesting that you've chosen that composer when when there's Mozart, there's Beethoven. There are lots of choices. I mean, the thing is that uh, the reason it has to be Bach, apart from my own personal love of his music, I'm just going to put the taste part of it to one side because everybody would have their favourite record or their favourite composer, sure. Mm. I am doing this partly because I love Bach, but I also love Handel and I love Mahler and I love Palestrina and I love, you know, the Beatles and I Mm. love Adele. Look, so there's lots of things I love. It's just that Bach has another role to play here, which is that Western music as a whole kind of is, all of it is really based on Bach. Bach is the lodestar. He is the template. Mm. Uh, I don't just mean because he came where he came in history and that everything came after him. So obviously, in a way, it was. It had to have come after him. Mm. What I mean is that what the way he managed harmony and created the harmony and the key system that he worked on with other various people, technicians at the time, that our entire keyboard harmony setup is based on is his doing. It is him. He is the person who, when you hear harmony in a tune and the chords moving from one to the other and the logic of the way they do that and the magneticism of the way chords react to each other. It's Bach who did that in a way that everybody followed. Now, someone else would have done it, by the way, if it hadn't been Bach. It's just that he was the one who figured this out and whose harmony underpins everything that came after him, really, including, in a weird way, his contemporary who was born just 50 miles away from him in Germany, um, Handel, who I also absolutely love. Mm. 
But there's no doubt that if you had just Handel, the harmonic complexity of what Bach put in place that everybody then borrowed, and I really mean everybody, they don't know they do, but they do, mm-hmm. um, it would have developed in a different way if you just had Handel. But because we had Bach, Bach's contribution made everything musically that followed more interesting and more logical and exciting in a way. And you hear it just everywhere. I mean, particularly, this is the weird thing, particularly modern contemporary popular music from the 20th and 21st centuries. Those bass lines you hear, those chord progressions that underpin everything, they started with Bach. He's the governor. And so if I had to, you know, if it's a time capsule, I think, you know, you have to have someone as key as that because everything flows from him, really. And here's the thing. Actually, I think in a way it's already happened because when Voyager 1 went to space, there was a golden record, Mm -hmm. it's called, put on that with sort of examples of where we were in the solar system. And if any other alien life form found us, they might be able to decode our messages. Mm. And I think various things were put on that record, but about 15 to 20 pieces of music were put on it. And Bach is three of them. (laughs) He represents us to the whole solar system. If any other life forms find Voyager 1, they'll find three pieces of Bach, one piece of Beethoven, one piece of Mozart, various other bits of jazz and popular music, etc. But only one composer gets more than one piece, and it's Bach. That's extraordinary. Of the entire history of music, they choose Bach three times. There was a rumour going around at the time, I remember this, which was that there was a strong feeling at NASA that Bach shouldn't be included, that we should put other composers on because putting Bach on was just showing off. And they might, they, they might take ill against us, these other life forms, if they thought we had Bach because he's so good. This is far too clever, far too complicated. What's going and, on? <laughs> so he got on there three times, which can you imagine? He was a school teacher, unknown in his own lifetime, pretty much, really? except a few niche people in, in his Saxony would know who he was as an organist. Um, 20 children of whom 12 survived. He was a teacher all his life who, if you'd said to him, by the way, one day, Johan, your music will represent planet Earth Mm. to the solar system. I think, I mean, can you imagine how his mind would have been blown by that thought? Astonishing. And I, I don't... I don't feel it's not one of those things like I want to have him for dinner, you know, because I, I think I'd find him rather a gruff, grumpy kind of a guy. Um, and there's an amazing book uh, called something like Evening in the Palace of Reason, where a guy um, kind of imagines the meeting between Bach, who's an old man by now, who's invited to the court of Frederick the Great of Prussia, who was a great music lover. This meeting did happen, by the way. Bach was summoned by Frederick the Great of Prussia to come to his palace in Potsdam. And uh, the reason he was summoned is rather menacing, in fact, because Frederick had a lot of young composers there in his sort of stable, including one of Bach's own sons. And they were all developing a new music, you know, the style galant. It was, it was sort of, you know, we're going to leave behind the music of the old, our old dads and come <laughs> up with... It was kind of, you know, punk for the 18th century. And they, he, what they wanted to do was, in a way, tease Father Bach because he was the master of what's called counterpoint, which is the interweaving of musical lines. And he was more brilliant in it than anybody who's ever lived. And there's no composer or musician in the world who would 
dispute that fact, by the way. That is just a fact. He was the best person at managing the interweaving of lines mm. and the interdependence of musical lines that has ever lived on planet Earth. And they wanted him to come and show off, you know, to show his skill at counterpoint. He could just sit down at a keyboard, take a tune and make a fugue out of it, mm. improvised at the keyboard. And a fugue is where you do one line, then you do another line that's the same tune and it fits with the first one like a very very complicated canon yes you know like london's burning but very very complicated and what frederick the great had done was he had got his young composers to think of a tune that you couldn't do that with that it would create so much problem for you that it would uh, it would like finding a crossword clue that a crossword person literally couldn't solve <laughs> so he thought let's get father bark who walked it was something like 100 miles. He walked there because he was so honoured to be asked by Frederick the Great. Uh, they said, let's make fun of him because we'll give him a tune he can't do as a fugue. And these young composers all sat around, you know, smirking. Mm. It's even thought that possibly his son, Carl Philip Emanuel, I think it was, was the one who set the impossible task. And anyway, what we do know is that Bach went, he did do, this task was set him. We know what the tune was. And he sat down at the keyboard and improvised a perfect, I think, four or five part few based on this impossible tune, because of course it wasn't impossible to him. And they were all a bit shamefaced. Anyway, what we don't really know exactly what happened, but we do know he went home to his tavern where he was staying the night. By the way, one detail, why didn't bloody Frederick put him up in his palace for the yeah. night. Him having walked all the way from Saxony. Somewhere Hundreds else in Saxony. of rooms. I know, it's just, how bloody rude. That's royalty for you, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, indeed. so um, he goes back to his tavern and he writes this thing to the king saying, I'm sorry, I don't think the thing I did for you today was good enough. Uh, and so he wrote out a, th a thing based on this theme, which he'd obviously remembered, mm. called The Musical Offering to Frederick the Great. And it is one of the greatest examples of musical skill ever exhibited. If you study music, it's, it's just amazing to look at this incredible feat of musical engineering. And he sent it to him, never got a reply. Wow. One, one of the lovely things about this story is, you know, what does that mean, that story? And actually the idea that someone who's towards the sunset of their life is ridiculed for being brilliant at something because the young want to just say, ah, we can do this, you are away. Um, there's something incredibly humane about the story because you feel so much for Father Bach mm. being slightly teased by even his own son who wants to curry up to this powerful man. Yes. And also the insecurity of Frederick the Great of Prussia, <laughs> a pathetic, you know, pissing contest thing for this royal twat that uh, he wants to ridicule the greatest composer alive. And the final footnote to all this, I know I'm going on too much about No, Bach, it's fine, I love I it. I hope I'm making my point. He's yes. got to be in that capsule. But uh, the final twist to all this is that when Bach died, the style galant that his sons and others took on was the thing that became fashionable and was the new style. And they did sweep away all the complexities of the old, you know, crossword style counterpoint. Mm. Uh, so they won that battle, and they must have felt very pleased with themselves. And we wouldn't really know about Bach because he was a well-kept secret by other composers. So Mozart, for example, knew his Bach, but Mozart would have known that Bach was sort of not really on the map for everybody else, for the general public. Mm. I mean, it's true to say the general public didn't really hear much music at all in those days. So, uh, you know, we've got to... It's not true. like they had Spotify. No. <laughs> they basically only knew the guy who played violin in their pub. Mm. That's who, in those days, the music you actually heard. Yeah, but strangely, sometimes, wasn't it, they would play the theme of the latest opera yes. in the pub. 
It's amazing, isn't it, how that music was disseminated? Yes, in Italy particularly, yes. all through the 18th and 19th centuries, the music you heard in your local cafe was opera, tunes from the latest opera. Yes. So, you know, that's one of the reasons Verdi was so well known as a, as a composer in Italy. Anyway, just going back to Bach for one yes, minute. Yes, do. He was known by other composers who would study Bach, his counterpoint and his harmony and all that, and his keyboard exercises uh, when they were young. And, but this wasn't a thing that the audiences really knew about. He sort of disappeared from sight until the young Mendelssohn arrived 100 years later. Mendelssohn, who died very young, was another one of the most brilliant musicians who ever lived. Unbelievably clever, unbelievably brilliant. But Mendelssohn is the one who said, by the way, everybody, Bach's the guy. You've got to know his music. He is the genius. He's the number one. He's in the time capsule. <laughs> and Mendelssohn put on, a hundred years after it had been written, a performance of Bach's St. Matthew Passion and said, you've really, guys, got to listen to this. Mm -hmm. he's, he's so good and you shouldn't not know about him. And because of Mendelssohn's championing of this composer he never knew, obviously, we now have him in our pantheon of great composers. Yeah. So the lovely thing about all this is he may have been ridiculed by Frederick the Great of Prussia, but in the end, musicians said, no, stop right there, Mr. Mad King. Uh, we've, we know better than you. This guy is brilliant and he's going to be forever brilliant as, if we can have anything to do with it. So I yeah. think there's something lovely about that. He was restored by the community of musicians and particularly by young Mendelssohn. Yes, so in the end, quality won out. Yes, it did. How fantastic. And I think one of the strange things about music is the way that things can disappear for lots of time and mm. then come back. Mm. And it's, it would be odd to people for people to realise that Vivaldi, whose Seasons is one of the most well-known pieces of classical music anywhere on earth now, was unknown until the 20th century. Unknown! <laughs> uh, uh, and there was only a revival of his music. He, he died in total obscurity. Good Lord. He'd written something like 140 operas and 200 concertos and all this kind of stuff. He was quite well known in his earlier life. Mm. But then after he died, he just disappeared for 200 years. Extraordinary. And at the beginning of the 20th century, he was resuscitated and then became kind of huge, <laughs> uh, uh, which I think is a remarkable thing. I think all of us composers, rather feebly hang on to the idea we might be one of those that yeah okay it's not going so well now wait a minute in 200 years time <laughs> i'm gonna be uh, big i'm hoping for this i'm all <laughs> fingers crossed uh, obviously in, on the the time capsule barks in the time capsule he'll remind me that's always possible yes ah oh. well i think that's absolutely extraordinary i have so many questions to ask you but i'm not sure <laughs> if it would be a good idea i mean well, for, for example before bark was it really sort of plain song and that no, sort of no, no that was a bit further back what had happened between plain song mm. and bach is you know 700 years yes. of development but very slow i missed that sorry so yes. so you know it took them two or so 100 years to go from one tune to another one with it Mm. I mean, it took a long time to get to four-part harmony, which is kind of the basis of where we are now. Mm. It got to a point in the 17th century in particular where they realised they'd found an impasse. They couldn't go forward because they discovered that they had all these different keys that music could be in, which was, had been inherited historically from the fact that, you know, a flute of a certain length plays in a certain key yes. and a different length column of air makes a different note. Mm. And so all of these different instruments had developed separately and they were never expected to play with each other. Ah. You just played your flute 
or your lute or your violin, whatever it was, you played your thing separately. But there was still a problem with with putting all these things together because they weren't tuned to each other. There was no way you could interlock their tuning. There's endless possibilities of how many notes you can have. And they started to discover harmony and chords and putting notes together. And they thought, oh, this is great. We love harmony, much better than just singing a single line on its own. (laughs) But while they were thinking this, they also realised they were heading towards a brick wall because harmony requires keyboard instruments, for example, for all their notes on that keyboard to work together in in tune. They've got to be tuned in such a way that they actually fit together properly. Mm. If your keyboard only had to play in one key, you'd be all right. But if you want to play more than one key on your same keyboard, you've got to fix it because each key obeys separate rules of tuning. Mm. So during the 17th century, the 1600s, they kept thinking, how are we going to solve this problem? Because we can see where we're headed and we know we can't really get past this problem because things are getting more and more out of tune. So the engineers and musicians started to beaver away. How could we make a keyboard where all these keys fit together on one keyboard? And then towards the end of the 17th century in Bach's lifetime. Now, Bach not only wrote music, but he was a great organist, and he also helped design organs. He's very, very interested in the engineering and the technology of organs, and he he was best friends with organ builders and really wanted to try and sort of improve how they worked. Mm. So he was fascinated by this issue of tuning. And towards the middle of his life, they found what they thought was kind of a, a fix, They'd found a tuning system that would make all these different keys, all the 12 keys, major and minor keys, work together on one keyboard. Uh, it's very close to a tuning system called Kernberger 3. You knew what to hear that, didn't you, Mike? <laughs> and uh, he came up with something like Kernberger 3. We don't, we don't know exactly, but he must have come up with a version that worked because he wrote a book of pieces. In every piece in the book is in another key. Mm. It's called the Well-Tempered Clavier meaning well-tuned. In other words, you could just play this whole book of pieces all in these different keys and major and minor keys without having to retune your instrument. He thought this is a big breakthrough. He was right. It was a huge breakthrough. Now, there are lots of people who say, well, equal temperament, which was what came out of that, where you make the distance between each of the divisions in the the key exactly the same, Mm -hmm. is a fix. It's not nature's way. It's a Western <laughs> industrial version of music. And it's, it is an artificial thing. But it made what came next, all the music written thereafter, happen. Mm. It wouldn't have been possible without it. So it, it was a fix, yes. yes. But it's like pasteurization for milk. Made you not die of salmonella poisoning, but it's not quite natural. Um, and they <laughs> and did it's all right. To- then jazz players came along and blues players. And they, <laughs> yes, quite. they learned to bend the note. They so. did. Anyway, so they did this, and Bach wrote these pieces, and this became kind of the exercise book for all keyboard people thereafter. I, I don't know quite how I got into a description of equal temperament <laughs> on this time capsule. It's but, my fault. But that's one of the things. That's it. Well, that's a fantastic thing. We will definitely put the great Bach <laughs> and his entire canon into the time capsule, and it's there for eternity. Now, there's a slight link between my first and second um, choices, by the way, so, mm-hmm. which I'm going to segue into because I'm embarrassed that there is a link, uh, but I want to come out, out front with what that link is Fair so enough. that you don't think less of me uh, <laughs> for having got such a narrow view of life. But I want to put in the organ of New College, Oxford. Oh, right. Now, you were at Christ, weren't you? I was at Christchurch, but in fact, I was a chorister at New College, right. a boy chorister as a child. 
And the reason I want to put the organ of New College Oxford into my time capsule is because, and the reason there's a link is because Bach was a great organist. Mm. And, you know, I've always been a nerdy, nerdy organ pipehead. <laughs> and I saw this organ as a chorister being built. They ripped out the old massive Victorian thing that had been in there before yes. in the organ loft. We had no organ in there for like over a year, I think. And we sang all our services with either no accompaniment or with just a little tiny chamber thing that was set up near the choir. And gradually they built this organ in the chapel and we saw it being built bit by bit, pipe by pipe. Now I should explain that the organ of New College Oxford is no ordinary organ. It was built in 1968 and opened in 1969, which is when I was a boy watching this thing happen. They decided to do something radical. And what they did was they said, well, organs used to look like this and Victorian organs sounded like this. And the English romantic organ, which is what most organs in cathedrals and places like that and parish churches sounded like, was a very particular sound and style. Mm. And they said, we would like to have a new, it was known as the organ reform movement and it came from Germany. And the idea was that they would go back to the basics of what organs were like in Bach's lifetime, how they worked, the mechanisms they worked by, the sounds they made. And not only that, we're going to do this from scratch. We're going to build it in an incredibly modern avant-garde case. In other <laughs> words, they took this old technology and they built something like the Pompidou Centre for the case. <laughs> and it's full of sharp aluminium lines and glass and angular 60s modernism. And, you know, when I was a boy chorister, I thought this was the most fantastic thing I'd ever seen mm. and heard. It was just magic miracle thing beautiful brave it, it said we are not scared of doing something incredibly modern and shocking mm. but we're going to make the thing inside it beautiful and make a sound that is exciting and i immediately wanted to learn that instrument <laughs> and they said to me you can't learn the organ until you've got to grade four on the piano so i right. went from grade one to grade four very quickly, because I thought, <laughs> I just want to get on that organ. I'm not interested in the piano. And I was taught by uh, a guy who was a student in the grown-up college, you know, who was an organ scholar. He taught me, and I was able to go and practice on my own in that organ in that chapel when Good it was Lord. built as a chorister. I mean, can you imagine that now, letting a 10-year-old walk from his school into, <laughs> into New College Chapel on his own, get a key, go up into an organ loft on his own when the place was shut, and just play the organ as much as you want. No, it's, it's an incredible privilege, isn't it? I'm amazed your feet reach the pedals. Well, they just did. Luckily, I was just tall enough. That is another issue, by the way, when Ooh. you start the organ when you're young. And for me, it was like a dashboard of an aeroplane. It was so exciting and modern and challenging and interesting, and yet it was based on the principles that Bach would have known of how, of how you make a sound out of an organ. Because in between Bach and the modern world, you know, they, they put in lots of enhancements to make playing the organ easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so electric and pneumatic touch so that every time you made more sound it didn't get harder and harder and harder well New College Organ said oh no 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 we're going to go back to the days when it was incredibly difficult to play and really you had to have very very strong fingers and uh, you had to train up your muscles to do this and 
I just totally fell for this instrument. I thought everything about it, I still feel that. If I were now to walk into that organ loft, by the way, you walk up these tiny steps in the medieval chapel to get to it, a little sort of cubbyhole area. Mm. And uh, certainly for a long time, my, the graffiti of my name, Goodall, was on that wall. They've probably covered it up now. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I used to go up there and... If I were to walk up into that organ loft now, I'd feel exactly like I did when I was 11 years old and just think this is a magical thing. The sound was amazing, incredibly loud, by the way. It was beautiful and shocking. And lots of people in the musical world who came to hear it said, oh my God, what are you doing? You know, how (laughs) shocking and ridiculous. Uh, Why can't you just have a nice old-fashioned romantic organ like everybody else? I think we have to put... We have to put the chapel in. Yes, with the organ. It has to be in there. I will definitely do that. And, and here's the thing. I've got a sort of subset for this. Because <laughs> what that organ did for me is that it gave me a love of the technology of music in a way that I immediately transferred. When I then went back to university as a student, mm. aged 18, one of the first people I met, well, in fact, the first person I met, university literally on my first day was rowan atkinson and he was doing an msc at that point in electronics electronical Mm. engineering and his special subject was about waveforms and voltage controlled oscillators which as some of your listeners will know is the bedrock of a synthesizer yes and when i went to university started university synthesizers had just started arriving into the uk from america and other places where they were being developed and um, rowan and i immediately found fellow interest in organs and synthesizers. (laughs) And when we did uh, our first comedy show with Richard Curtis and a number of others together uh, in my third week at university Mm. in the Oxford Playhouse, I had an electric piano by then. And I said to Ron, you know what I'd really like to do is I'd like to get a synthesizer and put it into this show so that this weird character you have, the character that eventually became a kind of a Mr. Bean character, Mm. uh, could be accompanied by something a bit unworldly and a bit strange and unusual and i said i think and rome was absolutely up for this and it just happened to be that i was making an album my first album in a band (laughs) and the producer of that album said i've got an arp 2600 which i know it means nothing to you but it was it's a it's a legendary iconic early synthesizer look i've interviewed rick wakeman i know all about these rick would know all about the arp 2600 he's probably got one an original one (laughs) anyway the producer of this album said would you like to borrow the 2600. I said, would I like to borrow it? I mean, you can't imagine my excitement about this. You mean actually have it in my room and play with it? He said, actually have it. So we actually brought it. This was an instrument, by the way, you would rarely see. I mean, in this point, we're talking about 1976, you would never have seen one of these things anywhere, except perhaps with Rick Waitman on stage. You know, I mean, they were not something anybody saw. And we brought it on and we used it in those first shows with Rowan uh, in Oxford as a, in a student show. And every time his sort of what we used to call the gobbledygook character, which was his kind of yeah. prototype, Mr. Beam, uh, I would use this synthesizer. Uh, and I developed this. And then when we went on tour, I persuaded Rowan to buy for the tour a Yamaha CS80, <laughs> one of the greatest synthesizers ever made. It was a thing of utter beauty. It's the thing of chariots and fire, you know, Stevie Wonder. It, it's one of the great iconic synthesizers of all time. So when we went on tour and we went all around, did, you know, the West End and all those kind of things, it was always me at the CS80. Yes, uh, which produces that sort of almost raindrop sound that you have on uh, That's Why I Hate the French. Yes, yeah. hold that thought. I will, Mike. I will. Uh, uh, <laughs> 
Now, I do not know, by the way, I rang up Rowan the other day and said, you don't still have the Yamaha, do you, in some storage somewhere? Because you do realise now they are incredibly valuable. Like, you can't get them on eBay for love no more. They're so valuable. <laughs> He's short of a penny or two as well. Well, he, he is. would have been excited I, but about But actually, that. what I was really thinking was, I would pretend to him they were only worth about 500 quid and buy it off him <laughs> uh, and not tell him that they are now worth thousands and thousands because they're so rare. Uh, anyway, he said he'd got rid of it in an earlier stage, which we all do. You know, we have these old pieces of equipment and we don't know they're valuable when they go out of fashion and you get rid of them. Anyway, so I have an incredibly fond love of, the, of these things and by yeah. the way when we came to do i'm sorry i'm digressing no, all over the right. but when we came to do the 2012 olympic games the opening ceremony where we did a thing richard myself and Rome put together this thing for danny boyle which was the chariots of fire idea that he was a member of the orchestra and all the rest of it in order to do that i had to recreate the chariots of fire soundtrack because we were going to do things with it you know change the lengths and the all that you know little tiny changes that would make it fit our sketch mm. um but i wanted to recreate it exactly you know as as the sounds which were all made by two synthesizers of that era of the chariots of fire era one of which was the yamaha cs80 so a great joy for me in doing that job for the olympics was actually getting these sounds back up and you know running them back on and recreating the chariots of fire vangelis theme exactly as it had originally been recorded with the same sounds and everything wow. it was a, a bit like doing archaeology you know recreating a roman house <laughs> i don't think many people who saw many of the three billion people who saw that were thinking oh that's interesting they've recreated the yamaha cs80 <laughs> sound there very but, accurate uh, it, it certainly um you know tickled me to do that yes did you help rowan in the development of his uh, classical pianist sketch well, uh, I think the honest truth is only a bit. I mean, I, we, we did do many sketches thereafter, mm. which were musical in, in style. In other words, he was a guitarist or a conductor in an orchestra or a drummer on stage. And I think it, it's probably misunderstood generally by people watching Mr. Bean how much it is a very painstaking process of timing. Mm. And uh, there is a kind of narrative stream through all those things. And they're very, very carefully choreographed. Yes. It's not just him mucking about. It's one of the questions I'm often asked because I did do an episode of Mr. Bean where we're in a hotel room and we have sort of competitive eating mm. and we spent a day on that scene. Yeah. It was incredibly detailed and people always say to me, so what, did you just, he just make it up on this? And you go, no, <laughs> yeah, no. of course he didn't. Far from it. Every detail. I mean, you probably remember, you know, his rehearsing style is how fast are you going to walk from that place to that place? Yeah. You know, where... Are you going to turn the handle of the door that way or that way? I mean, incredibly detailed. Absolutely. He's always been like that. And, and I think that with all the musical sketches we did, we did that. That We did one musical sketch in a later tour, which was the only thing we had to rehearse before every performance because it was so technically complex that if we our minds, our concentration on tour, as you know what it's like on your 40th <laughs> date, might wander. The whole sketch would be a disaster. And this was a sketch where he, he walks on stage and imagines that the whole stage is a drum kit. He kind of bumps into drums yes. and picks up drum kits and then plays everything. Mm. And what we'd done was I'd put on a keyboard, every note on the keyboard had a different drum sound on it. So we played this sketch live to an audience. Now, if you saw this on TV or screen, you'd think, well, say, what's the big deal? Because you obviously put the sound on afterwards, you know, so what? 
But we did this in front of a live audience, live. So he would literally hit a drum and it would happen exactly as it hit, hit the point because I was just watching him like a hawk. And everything we did, including him bumping into things, was all done live in front yeah. of an audience. I don't think at that stage people were that familiar with the idea of keyboard sampling. And so the audiences, big audiences, were not really sure how on earth it was done because mm. you couldn't possibly do it from memory from a recording. He couldn't mind that because every action was based on something he was doing, yes. not the other way around. Now, that sketch we had to rehearse. It was the one thing we always did wherever we went before the show because we needed to be absolutely on it because one slip there, timing mm. slip, mm. the whole magic of it would collapse. The whole fiction of it would collapse. So the key thing was timing. Uh, well, it's interesting that the key thing on that tour would be something that technical and that in fact it's the technical side of the whole business that brought you together in the first place yes not sharing a joke going wow aren't waveforms amazing he, he, he was also writing a book called the organs of oxford university which <laughs> obviously never got published and i think would have been on the top shelf yeah he i couldn't believe i've met someone who shared my nerdy interest in organs because <laughs> in another life i would have tried to write the same book but, of course, Rome was interested in organs in a kind of technological way. And I was interested in that. I always have been. But I guess I was also interested in actually playing them and having fun with yes. them. You know. Well, we should let you do that. You should play the Thank 1968 you. version of the <laughs> New College Chapel organ. Thank you. Every time I play it, I'll think of the Yamaha CS80. Yes. And luckily now your legs are long enough. <laughs> Got very rusty. Well, chance to practice. OK, that goes into the time capsule. So that's, uh, that's your second item. So yes. let's move on to item number three. Right, I'm sorry to interrupt just as we reach a crescendo, but we're going to take a short break here for an ad. We'll be back in a minimum. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. I hope that break didn't make you crotchety or come over all a quaver. Still, we've had a rest, so let's get back to Howard Goodall and discover what else he put in his time capsule. Item number three is the 24th of June 2015. Right. Can I have that? Yes, the whole day. Can I? And particularly from about three o'clock in the afternoon to about midnight. Okay. What happened? It was the opening night in the London West End. 
um, of the musical Bend It Like Beckham, for which I wrote the music. Uh. Now, why have I chosen this one of all of my 20 musicals or whatever yes. I've done? Not The Hired Man. Well, The Hired Man was October the 31st. Um, that's my front door going. I'm very that's sorry right. about that. The Hired Man, I actually, can, are we allowed to pause? Yes, please. I'm the only person. No, no, here. carry on. You go, if I you just go. go and answer it. Thank yeah, you very yeah, much. Yeah. I'll be go back right back. That's fine. So sorry about that. I'm here on my own. Um, so the opening of The Hired Man was the 31st of October 1984 in the West End. And that, of course, was terribly exciting, my first West End show. But I was, you know, 25. And you don't know when you're 25 how big a deal that is. You think when you're in your 20s, because you're smug and arrogant and all the rest of it, that that's just the next thing that happens. You do a West End show. And uh, I know that there's a thing on this capsule where you can put in things you, you know, never want Ooh. to see again or hear again. I have got something for that, by the way. But uh, one of the things I was thinking of in my shortlist was everything I said between 1980 and 2010. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think as a young man, I was insufferable and annoying and all those things that young men are. Yes. And I think I kind of breezed through the opening of my first West End musical as if it was something entitled to happen to somebody. And uh, I apologise for that to the world because um, it is an amazing thing to happen. And it happened because <laughs> another composer, not Mendelssohn as it happens, but uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, yes. heard my piece out of town and said, I'll, I'll bring this into the West End because I think people should hear it, which is fantastically generous and a wonderful thing to happen. And the show wasn't a commercial hit and, you know, ran for a relatively, in those days, a relatively short five months. There were a lot of people saw it and it, it kind of put me on the musical theatre map. So I'm incredibly grateful to it. And it's an extraordinary thing to have happened to a young man. And I just took it for granted. Uh, but spin forward to 2015 <laughs> when I'm an older man and I was much more aware of what it takes to get a show into the West End or Broadway and the complexity, difficulty, the challenge of that, how lucky you are if your piece is one of the ones that finds its way there. What a privilege it is to work with people of such incredible skills. The people you work with are simply the best. And the thing I love about doing the job I do is the complementariness of talents mm. that I couldn't possibly do what the actors and singers and dancers and footballers in that show did. I couldn't possibly direct. There are lots of things I just know I couldn't even start to know how to do. And I marvel at and cherish and love the talents of the people around me. It's one of the things that is just so fantastic about our job. It's one of the reasons that I like rehearsals more than I like performances. Because in a rehearsal, you're so acutely aware of the engagement of everybody's energies and creative skills to make something not rubbish. And we don't always succeed in that, but we, that's what we're trying to do. And Bend It Like Beckham was a five-year journey, like a lot of musicals are, to get to the stage. They're very, very long, slow process. Mm. And we had a cast of 30, more than half of whom had never stepped on a West End stage. <laughs> so from a kind of diversity and access point of view, mm. we were a, very much a trailblazing show, and I'm incredibly proud of that. About 150 people were required to put that show on. And it is a vast, like bringing a huge ship into harbour. We'd done 40 or so previews and we tinkered with the show the whole way through those 40 previews. We were working, yeah. you know exactly what I'm talking about. You work during the day 
and put in new songs and change things and change the order of things. You rehearse all day and then you do a show in the evening and see how that looks in front of an audience because you can't really do a musical without that process. You sort of have to see it in front of real people. I learned so much, not least because half the score of Bend It Like Beckham is Bhangra and Punjabi folk music. And I had a mentor <laughs> who I feel like is kind of my musical brother now called Kuljit Bamra, who's kind of the godfather of Bangra. And he basically taught me. And one of the things I had said right from day one to Gurinda Chadha, who wrote the thing and, and directed the movie and the, and the musical, is I said, what I'm not really interested in doing because I think it wouldn't be very good is a pastiche. What I've got to do is absorb this other culture and not pretend to be it, but absorb it and write like it because it's a very different thing from straightforward pastiche. And what Kuljit showed me was, he basically, like my music teacher, showed me how it all worked. And there were lots of things I just, were incredibly difficult for me to get my head around, because I, I think uh, the Indian, in the Indian culture, they actually hear music quite differently. The way it works is slightly different. And he taught me, first of all, to get to grips with it. Over a, This is over a five-year period, by the way. But he also, about halfway through that time, liberated me. And he said, Howard right you you know you've got enough of it now running through your blood and i'll correct you if it just feels wrong or, or inauthentic or something but just just be yourself don't be scared he said write for the tabla like you would write for any other drum don't think i've got to do funny tabla stuff you know i've got to just be tabla and use it like any other musical instrument and uh, i think it's very hard for one to assess one's own work so I'm, I'm going to try something very dangerous, yeah. which is to say, what did, I, what, what did I achieve and what didn't I achieve? I would say I did manage to write a score that somehow honoured those two traditions that felt itself and not, you know, one thing from here and one thing from there. That, because gradually the whole story of Jess Bamra in Bendit Like Beckham is that she has two conflicting cultures to belong to. She's a young Londoner and yet her parents want her to honour her Sikh heritage. And these things are in conflict for quite a bit of the play. And they are resolved in the end, in one th moment, in one day. And we had to create a score for the musical which would resolve it in the same way musically, so that gradually these two separate things become one. Oh, how fascinating. And that was what my job was to do. And for most of those five years, I kept thinking, I'm going to get sacked any minute now. <laughs> and Gurinder and Sonia Freeman, who's the producer, would just say, Howard, the songs you've written are quite nice, but we, we think we need, you know, a proper Indian composer. <laughs> We're going to get Andrew in. We'll get Andrew in. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, because you always feel a bit insecure as an artist, I think. I know the whole imposter syndrome thing. But I was thinking, I'm doing something here I may not pull off. Mm-hmm. And I might fall flat on my face and get this wrong and then annoy a lot of people who mm. would have thought they could do better and they probably could. So I was very nervous about it and I kept thinking every email I got would be the one that said, you know, you're being relieved of your duties. Thanks very much. <laughs> Bugger off. Uh, and, uh, but they never did get rid of me. And I think we did achieve that harmony, as it were, between the two worlds, musically speaking, in that score. And the show was a joyful thing. Mm. And it was a joyful thing to work on too with all those amazing people with incredible skills. I mean, how many times in our world do you get to work with cast members who are professional footballers? And they helped the members of the Lionesses, you know, the England women's team, uh, 
came and helped us with the choreography. Amazing. You know, with showing what their skills they did and how Just they did once it. in my career, in fact. Do you've done uh, it? Yes, I, I filmed a children's television series called Bradley, which was which starred an actor called Paul Bradley, who uh, has been in EastEnders and Holby City for many years. And it was based on him, and at one point he had to juggle a ball in the air in front of a bunch of school kids and then score a fantastic volley. Yeah. But Paul couldn't play football at all. But he had long, curly black hair at the time. So we asked for a footballer who had similar hair. And as we were filming in Manchester, uh, they sent along Mark Hughes. Oh, gosh. Who at the time was one of the best footballers in the world. And I think we paid him £50. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? But he did it in one take. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, it was an amazing thing. But there's another reason I've chosen this night and not other ones I could perhaps have chosen of other premieres. Or, mm-hmm. It's because I learned lots in that job, all, all sorts of things. But there's also a humility you learn about this because when you put a big thing like that in front of the public, it's the public who decide whether it's something they like, not you. Mm. And the reason I've chosen that night is because we'd done all we could possibly do that, you know, we had worked on this show, like Billio, done workshops and worked on it for years and years, honed it and honed it and honed it. And there it was, you know, we really were too exhausted to do anything more. And there was the piece <laughs> we presented. And we were getting the sense during the party afterwards that, that, that the reviews were coming through and they were very good, which is lovely. But you do not know if it will catch the public's imagination or if it will work as a commercial thing. And if you put on a big musical on the West End and it costs millions to do that, it can quite easily commercially come unstuck and you never get your money back because it's mm. got to run for a long time, which Benedict Beckham didn't. I mean, it ran for you know, nine months, a quarter of a million people saw it, but it was not a commercial success in the sense that any of that money was got back because it should have run for two or three years and yes. then everybody would have made a bit of money. I would say this not in any, you know, oh, poor me type of a way, but mm-hmm. I didn't earn any money at all from those quarter of a million people or the nine months it run because, as you may or may not know, if a show is not making enough money to pay its huge costs every week, you waive your royalties yes. as a writer. So we ended up not getting any royalties at all for that long run. <laughs> uh, had it run for two years and made its money back, of course we would have made money. And I'm not pretending that's, you know, I'm not, not a sob story, this. No, no. And I loved the whole process. And I learned so much about music and about theatre and about the people that were involved in it. And it was an incredibly happy cast after that, you as the writer walk away yeah. and you leave the performers to do the show. It becomes theirs, not yours. Yes, quite. And I occasionally go back and see a live show and I think, well, this is lovely. I'm very proud of this. But it is their show by then. And you realise that the relationship is between them and the audience, not you and the audience. Mm. And you have to take that back seat with good grace and realise that it's you know, not yours anymore. Mm. And because as an older man, I saw how wonderful it was that it even got to that opening Yes, in the state it did. But I also now see with the benefit of three years, four years, whatever it is that has gone past, five actually, uh, that it didn't perhaps meet the expectations we'd expected. It didn't run for five years, didn't make us all it, didn't do all those things, but it did so much else. So I take that night as a good example of kind of the, the bittersweet thing about success, mm. which is it doesn't, always give you the thing you think it's going to give you, but it gives you something else. And I think learning from everything you do, whatever it is, however successful commercially or not, or artistically it is, is really the thing that enriches your world. You, mm. you just learn all the time. You know. Well, that's the great lesson that comes out of what you told us there, is that uh, the thing you treasure is the amount you learned after 40 years of working sort of steadily, constantly <laughs> in the profession. You did something and went, I learned so much. Yeah. 
And that's, um, that's a fantastic thing. I yeah. Think. And also, you know, I was, of those 150 people who worked on Benjamin Light Beckham, I was the oldest. <laughs> and I didn't feel bitter or twisted about that. Honestly, I didn't. I just thought how wonderful to be working with all these young people. How lucky. It's a young industry mm-hmm. and the energy they have to put in, they need to be young in a way to do what they do, which is stay up all night and, you know, just work incredibly long hours and mm. exhaustingly. I don't mean to say that there's anything more exhausting than being, you know, a psychiatric nurse or a teacher in a secondary <laughs> school. These are much more exhausting jobs. Mm. But in relative terms, compared to being a composer, a dancer has to work physically much harder than (laughs) I do. Uh, And I'm aware of that when I'm in a room full of dancers. I'm thinking, (laughs) I'm exhausted just watching them, never mind actually doing it, what they're doing. So, And I came away with such respect for the people who do other things other than what I do, Mm. and the teamwork that it requires, and the group effort and the collaboration, which is what I think I've learned throughout my whole career, which is the people who do best are the people who learn how to collaborate best, Mm -hmm. who who are best team players. That this whole idea that it's a kind of X-factory you know, climbing up the pole and pushing everybody else down along the way is such nonsense. Yes. You don't get a career. You might get a one-off hit. You do not get a career from elbowing other people out the way. You get a career from surrounding yourself with very talented people <laughs> and feeding off their brilliance. So that's why I've chose that night. Marvellous. Marvellous. Okay, well, it's in there. That's three items we have in. Yes. So now I'm going to do the one that I never want to hear again. Okay, fine. You may remember, Mike, that in those early days of the Rowan show that we used to tour around, I used to sing a song called That's Why I Hate the French. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a satirical song with lyrics by the great Richard Curtis. And it was a funny song, really making fun of people who are xenophobic. Yes. Because the person singing the song makes an absolute ass of themselves by mixing up French and English words. And it's all not really about That's Why I Hate the French. It's, It's about how people are xenophobic and say things like it. That's why I hate the French. And whenever we played this live, I think the audience got the gag. I think they got, those people there in the room, got that that's what the joke was. Yes. And I don't know if you know the Randy Newman song, Short People. Yeah, absolutely. That there's a similar um, ethic going on there, which is that he's making fun of people who pick on people because they've got red hair or they're short or they're Mm. a different colour or whatever. And he's sounding like a redneck having a go at people who are short and how ridiculous (laughs) they are because they're short. What the song is, is a satire of that bigotry. Yes. Okay, so that's what we wrote the song for and that's how it works. You know, and the first two lines are, you know... We offered kindly to donate them Calais and all they gave us back was the (laughs) B-Day. Now, I think it's pretty clear that that is making fun of bigots who think that we did give them Calais, their own bloody place. It's not a line that you're going to particularly say, absolutely. Quite. So I thought it was clear at the time, and it was clear at the time, because we performed this to an audience who were coming to see a Ron Atkinson show, who on the whole would get that joke loud and clear because he did lots of things like that he did a very brilliant sketch mostly written by ben elton about an indian waiter in a restaurant it's not a satire of an indian waiter you as the member of the audience are 100 percent on the side of the waiter Mm. who is being abused by horrible racist customers that's the joke of the of the sketch it was a joke at the expense of people who make fun of being in an indian restaurant Mm -hmm. the real absolute belly laughs in that sketch are when you recognise how sweet and good-natured he is dealing with these horrible louts who've come for a lager-filled curry in his restaurant. Now, so I think everybody in those days got that that's what the joke was. But spin forward, and what's happened is that because of YouTube, for example, 
That sketch has gone out over the internet with me singing That's Why I Heard the French. And I now realise from seeing the comments that lots of people don't get that that's what the song is about. And it has caused, I can tell you from reading their comments, you know, real offence to French people who say, why would you sing a song about how you hate the French? You horrible English for doing this. It's because the, the tone, the ironic tone of that song doesn't translate no. to being on a clip on a YouTube uh, to a modern audience who were not in the room at the same time seeing and feeling and getting the general tone of the satire. Mm. And whilst I appreciate the fact that it was a song that I was able to sing in that show and people enjoyed it and they found it amusing and it fitted well with the other stuff we were doing and it was part of the early part of my career uh, and therefore you're grateful for anything that works, (laughs) frankly, (laughs) I now think I'd like it to go away and never be heard again because if people are going to misunderstand it as a thing that I don't like the French, that's the 100% opposite of the truth. And I felt as a postscript to that, Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote this theme tune to The Vicar of Dibley as a setting of Psalm 23. Yes. And it has been performed all over the world by lots of choirs in a non-TV you know, mm-hmm. environment. In other words, it's performed in churches and concerts and school concerts everywhere now as a piece of music. And though, of <laughs> course, many people know it's from The Vicar of Dibley, some don't, they just do it anyway. You can't go through that cut down into Oxford. You can't go through that cut without singing that song. Uh, well, that, I, I, that gives me great joy because I grew up near there and I, I saw that cut being cut. <laughs> from my bedroom window. So I'm very proud of that piece, the Vicar mm. Dibley, and because it's been received so in a lovely way and performed so many beautifully by so many people in so many places. And last year, at the beginning of uh, lockdown, was the year anniversary, as it turned out, of the fire of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Oh. And to commemorate the year since the cathedral had been burnt down, they did a virtual recording because they couldn't then meet because of the French lockdown. The choir of Notre Dame Paris performed my Lord is My Shepherd from the... Oh, Dibley. how lovely. In the most beautiful performance of it that they did all from their own front rooms, you know, and, and created <laughs> a virtual choir. Number one, it was very, very beautifully sung mm. with perfect English accents. Number two, they put this together with film of the gutted Notre Dame, which they couldn't sing in. And it, it was incredibly moving to see mm. this. Number three, they chose my piece. I don't even know if they knew it was connected to a TV comedy series, but the fact that they chose it and they did it with such care and affection and they just, it's so beautiful a thing. And you can find it on uh, YouTube if you look it up, Notch Diamond. It's a very, very beautiful performance of that piece. Mm. And it really made me weep. It was just so, so moving to Mm. see this, your own piece to commemorate this thing in the middle of lockdown with this choir in Paris. And my view is if any of the people who sang that saw... That's why I hate the French, uh, and did not get that it was a joke. It would be mortifying to me, Mm. absolutely mortifying, to use a word that's based on a French word. Uh, (laughs) uh, And so I move into my fifth choice. Well, absolutely. Well, well put. (laughs) That's why I hate the French is gone. Thank you. So you you do move on to your fifth choice. So my fifth choice is, can I, in the time capsule, have my French garden? We have a small second home in France, and I want that little home and garden, please. Yes, certainly. And my wife, my daughters and their husbands in it, please, because <laughs> I cannot live without them and I love them more than words can say. Uh, and we have spent so many happy times and I've written a lot of my pieces there because it's very quiet. It's not in a fashionable or 
famous part of France. It's not on the Côte d'Azur or on the Atlantic coast at Biarritz, and it's not in the Dordogne or the Lot or wherever lots of English people go. It's right in the middle in rural France. It's very French. No one speaks English around there. It's just a very quiet, unassuming, beautiful place. Mm. Um, and I go there and I'm able to compose a lot of my choral music I write there because it's so quiet and undisturbed. And it's been a total labour of love. We took something that needed a lot of work, like a lot of English people do. And <laughs> my wife has basically rebuilt the whole house in a beautiful way. And I, my job was to turn a pile of mud into a garden. Mm. And I find gardening incredibly compatible and cathartic with my composing because I can do a few hours composing and then go into the garden and dig up stuff. And all the time I'm working, carrying on working in my head on the music. Yes. So uh, lots of my big choral pieces, particularly choral pieces, which need a lot of concentration and their length apart from anything else is complex. And some of my other works I've composed there and I basically for a few hours at the desk and then in the garden. And I should say I'm not a kind of fancy gardener, you mm. know, doing unusual breeds of this, that, or the other, uh, you know, unusual gladioli or precious types of unusual roses. I'm what might be described as an agricultural labourer turned gardener. I like planting trees, digging up stuff. It's a kind of heavy duty gardening is what I like. Yeah. And we have a, quite a bit of land compared to our postage stamp in London, you know, where you can basically walk four paces and come back again. Uh, in <laughs> France, we have a bit of land around there and I've planted a lot of trees and we've made it a nature reserve. So we have loads of birds birds and wild animals and everything all over who they're undisturbed by anybody any anybody humans getting in their way or cutting their habitat down or mm. um covering them in pesticide or whatever it is and so we're we're it's a very it's a little nature place mm. and a lot of rewilding going on in some of it and i wouldn't describe myself as an expert gardener but i would describe myself as a very very enthusiastic gardener and i more or less plant anything from cuttings and seeds that that are natural to that place and i love this miracle of taking a little sapling of something and growing a fig tree from a little mm. twig. It's just the most amazing thing. Yes. And uh, I, look, I'm not preaching to... Everybody knows this. I'm not saying anything original or innovative about this. It's just so good for your spirit. And we've had, we've had this place for 15 years. And we, for 10 years, when our children were growing up, we ran a course for young carers from Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire who would come and have a sort of holiday and learn music in our barn. And it was such a formative and wonderful experience for our children as they were growing up because they became the tutors and the, you know, taught the other kids and had a wonderful time. And we were very acutely aware of our privilege of being able to have a second place to do this with our children. And so we thought we'd find some way. My wife, it's my wife's idea, Val, who, you know, wanted to find something that we could do so that other people could come enjoy it. And so mm. we had these young people who care the whole of their lives for adults and their siblings and things in very Amazing, yes. difficult circumstances and mm. never get a holiday for themselves or never no. get to do something for themselves. They don't, they're not, you can't even be in the school choir after school because they've got to go home and give pills to their mum or whatever. Mm. Mm. And so they came and we taught them musical instruments and they played a concert. And the first year we did this, we sent a little note round to our village, which by the way only has 200 people in it. And we <laughs> sent it on note round saying, look, we're doing a little concert if you can, can you come and be an audience? And we weren't that well known in the village at the time. We were just the English. Mm. So when the day of the concert came, the young carers and our children and everything, and the, you know, all got everything ready and prepared the barn and we put out every chair we could find in the barn. <laughs> and there was no audience. And we thought, well, it doesn't matter. We'll do the concert anyway. And then one of my daughters said, wait a minute, look down the street. And the whole village came oh my word 
The place was bursting at the seams. Mm. And that's why you love the French. It is why I love the French. The generosity of that gesture, and they kept doing it every year, and they kept giving us money to help the young carriers and all that kind of stuff. They knew us, you know, they just thought we were English people, and why would they know these young carers from Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire? Their generosity and the warmth, and they cheered and danced along, and it was the most (laughs) beautiful thing. Beautiful. And that is such a strong part of our experience living in that little village in France. And I can't imagine my life, obviously, without my lovely daughters and their husbands and my beautiful wife. But I, it's that place that has become so much our paradise, really. Mm. It's a very simple place. But I think maybe what we've all learnt in lockdown is that simple things are the most important. Indeed. You're absolutely right. And that's why it deserves to go into the time capsule. I'm very envious. I, well, I wish I had that village and that, well, that place. They but, are lovely, are. Yeah. but you certainly shall have it. You shall have it in the time Thank capsule. You. It's been really amazing, Howard. It's so nice to talk to you, Mike. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been really lovely. Not at all, not at all. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my wonderful guest, Howard Goodall. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe for all previous episodes and the new ones as they arrive at Acast or wherever you get your podcasts, where we'd be grateful if you would rate us and, if the opportunity arises, leave a short review. Thanks. You can follow us on social media for all the latest news. Just search for me or my time capsule. This has been a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens. The theme music is available on Spotify under the title My Time Capsule Theme Tune. And unlike nearly every other theme tune you'll hear, it wasn't written by Howard Goodall, but by Pass the Peas Music. Yeah, sorry, Howard. We just couldn't afford you. See you next time. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.